Lesson 1 for March 29 to April 4, Laws in Christ's Day. Introduction to the Quarters Lessons. This series of lessons has been written by Keith Augustus Burton, who is a professor of religion at Oakwood University, where he also serves as the coordinator of the Centre for Adventist Muslim Relations. His doctoral dissertation from Northwestern University focused on the role of the law in Paul's letter to the Romans. The introduction begins, The Law and Love. From the very beginning of the great controversy in heaven, it has been Satan's purpose to overthrow the law of God. That's a quote from the Great Controversy, page 582. Why? Because the law, as the foundation of God's government, expresses the moral integrity of the cosmos, and to overthrow that law would be to overthrow the moral order of the creation itself. Think about it. If no God existed and no life either, the universe would be amoral. Not immoral, as in having bad morals, but amoral, as in having no morals, because nothing in it, such as lifeless rocks hurling through a godless cosmos, could manifest moral qualities. However, God exists, and humans do as well, and we have been created as moral beings with the capacity to give and to receive love. For this love to exist, however, freedom, moral freedom, must exist too, because love is a moral concept that couldn't arise in an amoral universe, such as one composed of only rocks and cold space. Morality, though, means the ability to choose right or wrong, good or evil, and the only way for the universe to be moral, to allow the potential for good or evil, for right or wrong, would be for it to have a law that defines right or wrong. And, of course, does it have such a law? What shall we say, then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, Do not covet. Romans 7, 7. Is it sinful to have red hair? Why not? God's law doesn't forbid red hair. If it did, as the law forbids covetousness, then having red hair would be a sin. But it cannot be sin if no divine law defines it as such. Morality without law is as impossible as is thought without mind. Our universe is moral because God created free beings answerable to his law. If there were no law against coveting, there would be no sin of covetousness. If there were no law against red hair, there would be no sin of red-headedness. No matter how many red-headed coveters populated the cosmos. God created humans as creatures who can love. Love, though, can't exist without freedom, moral freedom. And moral freedom can't exist without law, moral law. Love rests on freedom, and freedom rests on law. Hence, the core of God's government, the foundation of that government, a government of love, has to be his law. That's why Ellen G. White wrote what she did about Satan's desire to overthrow the law of God. The attack on the law is an attack not just on Christ's character, but on the moral order of the creation itself. Hence the topic for our quarter, 
Christ and His Law. We will study the law, especially the question of why so many Christians, misunderstanding the relationship between law and grace, have fallen into the trap of denying the continued validity of the Ten Commandments, thus unwittingly helping the attempt to overthrow God's law. The Bible, though, is clear. 1 John 5.3 For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. The link between our loving God and the keeping of His commandments is stronger than we realize. We can love God because we live in a universe where love can exist, and it can exist because the universe is moral. That morality is based, at least for us as created beings, on God's moral law. The subject we will now explore. Sabbath, March 29. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to the beginning of a new quarter. We're looking at a totally new topic. But then, of course, with your word, everything is related. And as we look to the scriptures this week and this quarter, dealing with Christ and the law, we pray that our hearts may be open to the working of your Holy Spirit. Give us understanding, give us grace, and give us the direction we need, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Romans chapter 2, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves. Let's read that again, Romans chapter 2, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves. In most societies, various laws function at the same time. There can be general laws that apply to everyone, and simultaneously local laws that prevail in one community but not in another. In New Testament times, when a person used the common word for law, nomos in Greek, lex in Latin, and Torah in Hebrew, he or she could have been referring to any one of a number of laws. Often the only indicator as to the exact law being discussed was the context of the conversation. Thus, as we study this quarter, we'll always need to keep the immediate context in mind in order to understand best what law is being discussed. This week's lesson investigates the various laws that functioned in the community during the time of Christ and the early church. We will study these various laws, but only in the context of helping to set a foundation for the study of the law that will be the major focus of this quarter, God's moral law, the Ten Commandments. Sunday, March 30. Roman Law. Question. Read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. 
what lessons can we learn from the ways in which these two faithful followers of the Lord interacted with their political environment? First of all, Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, so all went to be registered, every one in his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Since the time of the early Republic, the Romans recognized how important written laws were for the governance of society. In fact, the system of constitutional law established by the Romans remains a foundation of the legal systems found in many of today's democratic societies. For the most part, Rome allowed vassal kingdoms to maintain their own customs, but all subjects were expected to obey imperial and senatorial laws. Obviously, this included Joseph and Mary. Roman law was concerned with order in society. As such, it not only addressed issues of government, but also legislated behaviour in the domestic arena. In addition to stipulating the procedures for selecting people to public office, Roman law also dealt with things such as adultery and master-slave relationships. Many of the social codes are similar to the ones found in the Old Testament and other societies. All attempts to understand the culture in which the New Testament books were composed must take into account the fact that the Roman Empire formed the political backdrop for the world in which Jesus and the early church lived. Many things taking place in the New Testament, from the death of Jesus to the imprisonment of Paul, make much better sense when we understand whatever we can about the environment of their times. Of course, one doesn't need to be a scholar of Roman history in order to understand that which we need for salvation. However, when it is possible for us to obtain it, historical knowledge can indeed be helpful. Despite the amazing providences of Mary's pregnancy and the obvious hand of the Lord in it, these two people still obeyed the law of the land, which required them to leave their home even when Mary was quite far along in her pregnancy. To finish the day, would it not have been better simply to have stayed home, considering the extraordinary circumstances? What might their actions say to us about how we should relate to civil law? Think how easy it would have been for them to have justified not obeying. Monday, March 31. Mosaic Law, Civic. Although the Jews were under Roman rule at the time of Jesus, they were granted authority over those issues that were unique to their customs and religion. We read about that in Acts chapter 18, verse 15. The legislative body responsible for administering Jewish law was called the Sanhedrin. 
sometimes referred to as the Council, as in John 11.47 and Acts 5.27. The Sanhedrin consisted of 71 men selected from among the priests, elders and rabbis, and was presided over by the high priest. It served as a type of supreme court that dealt with Jewish customs, traditions and laws. Jewish societal law was founded upon the civil codes revealed in the five books of Moses. Because Moses was the author of the first five biblical books, the laws are referred to as the Law of Moses. When God originally gave the laws to Moses, he envisaged a state where he would be the head and the people would enforce his legal mandates. By the time of Jesus, the Jews were subject to Roman law, However, the Roman government allowed them to use Mosaic law in order to settle issues related to their customs. Here is where the work of the Sanhedrin was especially important. The New Testament provides several examples of the Mosaic law being applied or alluded to in civic matters. Jewish men were still expected to pay the half-shekel temple tax. We read about that in Matthew 17 and... The original is in Exodus chapter 30. Divorces were still being governed by the stipulations set forth by Moses. Once again, Matthew 19, we could compare that with Deuteronomy 24. People still adhered to the law of Leviriate marriage, in which a widow was to marry her husband's brother, Matthew 22, and compared to Deuteronomy 25. Boys were still circumcised on the eighth day, John 7 and Leviticus 12, and adulterers were to be punished by stoning, John 8 and Deuteronomy chapter 22. Question. Read Matthew 26, 59-61, Hebrews 10:28, and Deuteronomy 17:2-6. What important principle is seen here? What does this tell us about biblical concepts of justice and and fairness. First of all, Matthew 26, verses 59 to 61. Now the high priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 28. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verses 2 to 6. If there is found among you, within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, a man or a woman who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God, in transgressing his covenant, who has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has committed that wicked thing, and shall stone to death that man or woman with stones." Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So to finish today, read some of the civil legislation found in the early books of the Bible. 
Some of these laws do seem strange to us, don't they? For example, Deuteronomy chapter 21. Considering who the author is of these laws, what should this tell us about how we must learn to trust the Lord in all things, especially those things we don't fully understand? Tuesday, April 1, Mosaic Law Ceremonial Question. Read Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, chapter 5, verses 11 to 13. To what are these laws referring? What was their purpose? And what important truths were they meant to teach? Beginning with Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. In his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd. Let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He shall kill the bull before the Lord, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire." Then the priests, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head, and the fat in order on the wood, that is, on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And Leviticus chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. If you offer a grain offering of your firstfruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your firstfruits green heads of grain roasted on the fire, grain beaten from full heads. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. Then the priest shall burn the memorial portion, part of its beaten grain and part of its oil, with all the frankincense as an offering made by fire to the Lord. And Leviticus chapter 5, verses 11 to 13. Now, if he is not able to bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then he who sinned shall bring for his offering one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a sin offering. He shall put no oil on it, nor shall he put frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. Then he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take his handful of it as a memorial portion, and burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. It is a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement for him for his sin that he has committed in any of these matters, and it shall be forgiven him. The rest shall be the priest's as a grain offering." Besides the civil laws in ancient Israel, there was also what is often called the ceremonial law. 
This law centred around the sanctuary and its services, all of which, of course, were designed to teach the children of Israel the plan of salvation and point them to the coming Messiah. In the text for today, twice it is mentioned that through these services atonement would be made. In their own way, these laws were what has been deemed many prophecies of Christ and his work of atonement for the sins of his people. Ellen White writes in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 367, The ceremonial law was given by Christ. Even after it was no longer to be observed, Paul presented it before the Jews in its true position and value, showing its place in the plan of redemption and its relation to the work of Christ. And the great apostle pronounces this law glorious, worthy of its divine originator. The solemn service of the sanctuary typified the grand truths that were to be revealed through the successive generations. Thus, through age after age of darkness and apostasy, faith was kept alive in the hearts of men until the time came for the advent of the promised Messiah. End of quote. Though instituted by Jesus, the ceremonial system was meant to function only as a type, a symbol of a future reality, the coming of Jesus and his death and the high priestly ministry. Once he completed his work on earth, this old system, along with its sacrifices and rituals and feasts, no longer were needed. See Hebrews chapter 9, verses 9 to 12. So Hebrews 9, verses 9 to 12. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances, imposed until the time of reformation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So to finish today. Though we no longer keep the ceremonial law today, by studying it, we can garner insights into the plan of salvation. Central to the sanctuary service was the sacrifice of the animals, which pointed to the death of Jesus. Think what it means that our salvation could come only through his death on our behalf. What did this tell us about just how costly sin is? Wednesday, April 2, Rabbinic Law In addition to the Mosaic Laws, Jews at the time of Jesus were also familiar with the law of the rabbis. The rabbis were the scholastic arm of the Pharisees, and they took the responsibility of ensuring that the Mosaic Law remained relevant to the people. The rabbis counted 613 laws in the five books of Moses, including 39 pertaining to the Sabbath, and they used these laws as the basis for their legislation. 
They supplemented these written laws with an oral law that consisted of the interpretations of leading rabbis. Oral law is known as halakha, which means to walk. The rabbis felt that if the people adhered to their numerous halakoth, plural of halakha, they would walk in the way of the 613 major laws. Although originating as oral law, the rabbinic halakoth were collated and recorded in, in book form. Some of the interpretations from Jesus' day survive in commentaries known as midrash, while others are recorded in a legal collection called mishnah. Many religious Jews through the ages, and even today, seek to adhere strictly to these laws. Question. Read Luke chapter 14 verses 1 to 6 and John chapter 9. Although Jesus was accused of violating the Sabbath with his miraculous healings, where can you find in the Old Testament that it's a sin to heal on the Sabbath day? How does the answer help us to understand some of the issues with which Jesus had to address? More important, what lessons can we learn from these incidents that could help us to make sure that we don't make similar mistakes in our attempts to walk in the way faithfully? Well, let's begin with Luke chapter 14, verse 1. Now it happened, as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering said to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they were silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. And then John chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed, and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbours and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees, who asked him again how he had received his sight, he said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. 
Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight, until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked him, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. The parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvellous thing that you do not know where he is from. Yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. Though it's easy from our perspective today to deride many of these oral laws, especially when they were used as they were against Jesus, the fault exists more with the attitude of the leaders and not with these laws themselves. Though often kept very legalistically, Halakoth were meant to be very spiritual, infusing a spiritual element into the most mundane of actions, giving them a religious significance. So to finish today, 
How can we learn to give even the most mundane tasks a religious significance? Thursday, April 3, The Moral Law However much Roman law, Mosaic law and Rabbinic law impacted the lives of Jews living in first century Israel, many people who followed the religion of Israel lived outside of Palestine and beyond the borders of the Roman Empire. Thus, many of these laws would not have played a big role in their lives. At the same time, however, anyone professing to be a follower of the God of Israel would have adhered to the Ten Commandments. Leslie J. Hoppe, in Ten Commandments, which is Erdman's Dictionary of the Bible, published in 2000, page 1285, writes, The Ten Commandments provide Israel with the moral framework for maintaining it, their relationship with God. The metaphor that the Bible uses to express this relationship is covenant. While the metaphor comes from the sphere of international law, it is wrong to understand the commandments merely as a summary of Israel's obligations toward God. Israel's obedience to the commandments was not a matter of submission to the divine will as much as it was a response of love. End of quote. The Ten Commandments surpassed any system of law known to Jews in the first century. Even the Pharisees, who had meticulously memorized the 613 Mosaic laws, recognized the importance of the Ten Commandments. The division of the Mishnah, called Tamid 5.1, contains a rabbinic command to recite the Ten Commandments daily. It was believed that all the other laws were contained in the Ten Commandments. In fact, the Jewish philosopher Philo, who was a contemporary of Jesus, wrote an entire book on the central place the Ten Commandments held among all biblical law. Question. Read Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 19, Romans 13, verses 8 to 10, and James 2, 8 to 12. What do these verses say about the role that the Ten Commandments play in the lives of those who are followers of Jesus? Matthew 19, beginning at verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honour your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. And Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour, 
Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. And James 2, verses 8 to 12. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Like their Jewish counterparts, the inspired writers of the New Testament recognized the purpose of the Ten Commandments for God's people. Although some of the lessons for this quarter will discuss the way in which Christ interacted with other systems of law in his day, the primary emphasis will be on his relationship to the Ten Commandments, what is often known as the moral law. Friday, April 4. From the book Selected Messages, Book 1, page 230, Ellen White writes, If Adam had not transgressed the law of God, the ceremonial law would never have been instituted. The gospel of good news was first given to Adam in the declaration made to him that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head, and it was handed down through successive generations to Noah, Abraham, and Moses. The knowledge of God's law and the plan of salvation were imparted to Adam and Eve by Christ himself. They carefully treasured the important lesson and transmitted it by word of mouth to their children and children's children. Thus, the knowledge of God's law was preserved. And that brings us to our four discussion questions this week. 1. Long before Moses penned the laws that were to govern Israel, the Egyptians and Babylonians had systems of societal laws that were in some cases similar in content to some of God's laws. Even atheistic societies have laws that protect people and property. Law, though, is often based on moral concepts. That is, law should encourage people to refrain from certain types of evil and to do certain types of good. From where, though, do societies get their sense of good and evil? 2. How does the whole concept of good and evil impact the question of God's existence? In other words, if there is no God, from where do the concepts of good and evil come? From where is the only place that they could come if no God existed? 3. We often use the concept of law in different ways. We talk about the law of gravity, the law of motion. We talk about international law. We talk about the law of the land. We talk about tax law. What do all these laws have in common? In what ways do they differ? What is the probable consequence of violating any of these laws? What are the benefits of cooperating with these laws? How do the principles of law help you to understand the purpose of the Ten Commandments as it relates to the life of the believers? And four, 
in class, go back to Wednesday's lesson, and deal with the issue of how we as a church need to be careful that we don't make the same mistake that some of the leaders did by adding burdens to the law that were never meant to be there. Why is such a mistake easier to make than we might think, no matter how well-meaning we might be? Inside Story A Life of Influence Elizabeth Kamongo will soon complete her studies and return to her village to work for her people and share God's love among them. There's a lovely photograph of uh, Elizabeth in her customary dress. Well, let's see what the story is. A Life of Influence Elizabeth Kamongo was born into a traditional Maasai family in Kenya. In her culture, girls are expected to marry soon after their twelfth birthday. Women have little say about their lives, but Elizabeth refused to leave school to marry. She had a dream. While home for vacation before starting high school, Elizabeth learned her father had arranged for her to marry an older man. With her mother's blessing, she escaped and returned to her Seventh-day Adventist school. During high school, Elizabeth took her stand for Christ and later was baptised. When she told her mother that she wanted to study at the Adventist University, her mother encouraged her to go. Elizabeth is majoring in agriculture, a field that will help her teach her people how to preserve their land and provide a better life. She works on campus and receives some scholarship funds to help her pay her school fees. Sometimes she must take a semester off to work full-time to earn the money to continue her studies. Elizabeth's example has helped her younger sisters stay in school and avoid early marriage. Her father, once angry that his daughter would refuse to marry the man of his choice, now accepts her decision. But he pressures her younger sisters to marry this man. Elizabeth encourages her sisters to walk close to God and to continue their studies to make a better life. Elizabeth urges other Maasai girls to study hard and trust in God. Don't allow life circumstances to steal your life away, she says. Satan wants to destroy you. You must trust God and not let Satan have his way. Elizabeth is old enough now that her community will not force her to marry. They accept her as an adult woman who can make her own decisions. I want to teach my people by example how to produce better crops for a better life, she says. The village has given me a piece of land that I use to plant crops so that my fellow villagers can see for themselves the success they can have by following my example. Elizabeth is grateful for Adventist schools that have prepared her to live a life of influence among her Maasai people. Our mission offerings and 13 Sabbath offerings help these schools reach young people in all walks of life, including Maasai girls in the heart of Eastern Africa. Thank you. Your reader this week has been Dr. Percy Harold. The lessons have been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember that God is always faithful.